This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 620, A Conversation with Mark Wade. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 620. It's our conversation with Mark Wade, and I'm your host, Adam Chapman. For today's episode, I sat down with Mark Wade to discuss his work on the cross-chain comic book Ruse, which was originally published starting in 2001. Uh, Mark worked on the first 12 issues of this uh, celebrated series. He worked with an amazing creative team. He worked with uh, Mike Perkins. He worked with Butch Geist. And he worked with Laura Martin. Uh, they were a tr- tremendous team that put together an amazing uh, Victorian-style uh, mystery book. Uh, with an amazing sleuth, Simon Archer, and his, uh, his his partner, Emma Bishop, or as he as Simon Archer would say, his assistant, but uh, she would always clarify she was actually his partner. Uh, it was a really phenomenal book, and the first 12 issues are something particularly special. Uh, the rest of the series is still phenomenally uh, entertaining. Uh, I believe Scott Beatty came in and wrote the book with the creative team. Uh, and then when Marvel public, uh, sorry, purchased the... Uh, well, Disney purchased the rights to all the costume IP uh, in the comic book equivalent of a fire sale in the mid-2000s. Um, and then when they purchased Marvel, it was kind of, you know, some people wondered if eventually we get to see some of the costume titles get republished in some way. And eventually uh, they did. Uh, they brought back uh, a few of the titles. I believe they brought back Sigil. They brought back Ruse. I think there was one other that I'm not remembering right now. Um, and they kind of put new stories. Or Now, it was interesting because Sigil was very different. They really had no real connection to the original book. But with Ruse, it very much felt similar. Uh, you had the original creative team, artistic team, I should say, uh, come back to do covers, and you had Mark Wade uh, writing the book with a new artistic partner on the interiors. Uh, but it was still about Simon Archer and Emma Bishop, but this time, instead of being on a, a far-flung earth or, um, you know, that looked vaguely Victorian, but had a lot of, you know, just big differences that if you kind of looked in the details, uh, instead it was set more on earth and, uh, you know, it's still kind of Victorian era telling stories about, you know, this master sleuth. Uh, still very much feeling like, you know, it was akin to the original book, um, but you know, obviously, it wasn't going to be on the original world that uh, the costume books were set on. Anyways, I got to sat down with uh, with Mark to discuss his work on the book, uh, how he came to work for Costume. I found it tremendously entertaining and interesting because uh, I was, you know, 16, 17 years old when Costume first started. I was right there at the beginning. I remember I picked up the, uh, I believe it's called the Cross Genesis Primer or Sampler. I can't remember exactly what it was called, um, and it had, you know, kind of spun off these four main books that were going to happen, and then the original four books did launch and I remember with every new title I was trying to buy as many of them as could. I didn't end up ending up with all of the costume books, but I definitely had a lot of them, especially in the early years. Um, and uh, Ruse is definitely a very special one to me. It was something I loved. It was so different. Uh, costume did a lot of things differently in terms of the different genres. It wasn't just uh, traditional superheroes. They really didn't have a traditional superhero book. Uh, they did a lot of different types of genres. Anyways, you didn't come to hear me talk. You came to hear Mark Wade talk about his time working on Ruse at Crossing Comics. So without further ado, let's get into that. But before I do, you can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail com. Like the show on Facebook, read and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also listen to us on Stitcher. And now, without further ado, let's jump right into my conversation with Mark Wade. Mark, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, today we're going to talk about something that's always been a, a big thing that I've loved for a long time, which is uh, the, I guess, relatively short-lived comic book, Ruse, uh, which you wrote for the first year, way back in, I guess, what, what was it, 2001? 
2001, 2002, yeah. Wow, that's a, that's a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. So I'm curious, so uh, for those who don't know, Ruse was a comic that was published by uh, Crossgen Comics, which was kind of the upstart that kind of came up, uh, I guess, in 2000, uh, and was around for a few years and then kind of, you know, uh, disappeared because of money mismanagement or whatever issues that happen and insolvency. But uh, during its time, it had a lot of books that kind of quickly uh, were published and uh, a lot of good stuff with a lot of different genres. And uh, I'm curious, how did you first get approached to kind of join that Crossgen family? Uh, originally, the owner, Mark Alessi, uh, had asked me to come down. I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And he wanted me to come down full-time on staff, which wasn't really my my thing. I'm more of a freelance guy. But uh, the offer was made to me to come down, be their head writer, and, uh, and sort of help manage the freelance people who worked there. The way CrossGen worked is that no one was a freelancer. Everyone worked in the offices, the artists, the letterer, the colorist, the writers, uh, which is unusual. In most comics companies, you, you're just a freelancer working at home, but this was a staff position. So with so many creatives on staff, the idea was to get somebody down there with a lot of editorial experience and you know, somebody who would work through those jobs as well and sort of, you know, work, work and sort of manage that crowd. And so that, you know, that was the original pitch. And that's what brought me down there in 2000, late 2000, early 2001, somewhere along in there. So the company had already kind of started up and they still had, they had their original books. It's first published by then, right? Right. They had like the original, I think they had four as a rollout. Yeah. Uh, and I think those were still moving. And so the idea was they wanted to start expanding. And how did that? I mean, as a as a freelancer in that that time, what did what was your impression of the company when it first kind of came out? That it was this different model that was so different from what classic comic book companies have been set up as. Well, that was interesting. But what really sold CrossGen to me and to a lot of people is that this is two thousand two thousand one. The industry is in complete freefall. Um, everything was collapsing. This is the God's honest truth. Uh, DC didn't seem to have a plan, and Marvel, this was just before Joe Quesada and Bill Jemis took over Marvel, and that place was flailing badly. And there was a general sense in the industry among all of, all of us in the industry that things were really bad and no one knew quite what to do, and here comes CrossGen, and they've got a plan. I know it may not be the best plan, you don't know, but at least everybody's falling through the air, and they're the only guys with a ripcord. So maybe you know, lean into them and see what they've got to say. Now, when you first go for that interview, I mean, um, of the original kind of staff that was at that company, were they people that you knew? What were, what were you hearing about the company? And again, the idea of having this kind of team mentality where everyone was kind of working together in the same offices. Well, yeah, there were there were a mixture of people there I knew and, and a lot of artists I didn't know. I knew Barbara Kiesel, I knew Ron Mars, I knew a couple of other people. Um knew most of them by reputation, but that was, you know, I knew it was a good crew. Now, when you come in, so they, you know, they, they offer you kind of the, the staff gig and that's not quite what you're looking for. So how did they kind of say, okay, let's do something different? Or how did you end up getting the book that became Ruse? And I think you worked on Crux as well, right? I worked on Crux and Sigil, actually. I mean, the idea was always that I would come in and be a writer as well as to do some more administrative work. And so coming in, the idea was that I'd be, I would inherit one of the books and, and launch another one, which ended up being Crux. Uh, I think at some point fairly early in, uh, 
Mark and his cousin Gina, who ran the company, the two of them, and they were the they were basically the creative heads, if you will. They were the ones whose ideas were put into comic book form. They would come up with these ideas and these concepts uh, in rough form, and then and then assign them to writers and artists and develop something out of there. So I remember distinctly, and we all went out to lunch one day, and they were very excited about doing something in the Sherlock Holmes vein, and. I can't swear to it. I want to say it was my idea to try to turn left off of that and make the Watson character not only a female, but also the, clearly the hero of the book. I mean, without making the, the uh, Sherlock Holmes figure look uh, you know, incompetent in any way, shape, or form, it was going to be always told through her eyes. Uh, she was going to be sort of the emotional core of the book, and she was going to be the one always making up for Simon Archard's shortcomings. He was the Sherlock Holmes figure uh, because Simon's whole bit is that he's so intellectually involved and is so analytical that he really doesn't understand simple things like tact <laughs> and bedside manner and you know common sense and things like that. He's, so it's basically her job to keep him alive as they investigate things. When the book was kind of being developed in that kind of early pitch phase, um, was it always kind of? I mean, I'm kind of getting ahead, but in the in the book as presented in the first twelve issues, it doesn't feel like there's a um, necessarily a direct connection to the kind of larger sizzle verse that existed at the time. Although um, you sent me some outlines from original issues, and it was very interesting to me because it kind of intimated some stuff that I didn't ever read on the page or didn't notice that um, that there was kind of a, a negation artifact was the original concept for um, the prism, which I thought was a really cool concept, but I never really saw it on the page. So when you guys were first conceptualizing the story, was it very clear that this is going to be more or less set aside from the grander sigilverse, or how did that kind of develop? It, it really, that was me and artist Butch Geis and uh, you know, Mike Perkins and Laura, uh, you know, working on uh, work on the book. Uh, that was kind of our <laughs> our little uh, our little plan. I, it was as it presented to us, it was going to have to tie in very very heavily with the shared universe of CrossGen. And while it, that works well for some books, we all felt creatively that didn't really work very well for this book. That so you know, what can we do to nod towards it without actually coming out and making it seem like it's part of some bigger thing that doesn't have anything to do with it. This, again, that's what, for instance, well, that's reason. That's the reason why we didn't just set it in London. Mm. We made up a fictional English town called Partington, which is right there, sort of a nod to the idea that this is not quite the earth that you're thinking about. And this is not quite the reality that you know. But we always figured that if you made it too heavily lean into the shared universe, then anyone who's going to pick this up and read it in and of itself stands the chance of being very confused very quickly because they, they, no one wanted them to read this book and go, oh, I have to read six other things in order to understand the story, so I'll put it back. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Not, not to in any way cast shade on uh, the original kind of Christian idea, but how did you feel coming in, working in such a, a shared universe in this way that's very deliberate that, I mean, obviously, like, Marvel and DC have shared universes, but this is a very specific, like, different worlds, but it's all kind of part of this wider tapestry. How did you kind of feel coming into something like that? Because obviously Crux was very heavily involved in that. Right. Well, 
I had mixed emotions. I mean, on the one hand, I you know I, I see the value of doing a shared universe, and at that point, not a whole lot of comics companies had done that. Now it's just the way comics companies launch. They always seem to launch with a shared universe. <laughs> uh, and you got to remember, yes, Marvel and DC had shared universes, but they were not never created as shared universes. The DC universe certainly wasn't. It was a bunch of different realities and different alternate Earths and so forth. It was, was smashed together in the 80s. And Marvel was just Stan and Jack and Steve Ditko riffing and creating characters randomly here or there without the whole foresight of someday this is going to all be some big interlocking universe. It just sort of naturally evolved into that. This was conceived from jump as a shared universe, all built around uh, the sigil, all built around the idea that there is, you know, uh, there are artifacts and there's a history here and there's some sort of intergalactic war between great beings and our characters are sort of playing in the universe. And again, it works on a science fiction level and it works for some books better than it works for other books. So like I said, this is sort of our compromise toward that, nodding toward that shared universe and not doing anything, uh, uh, you know, in, away from it, not doing anything to defy that, but not having to have every issue of Ruse open up with, you know, welcome to this shared universe full of six other books that mm-hmm. that might scare you off. Jumping ahead a little bit, but just because the idea of, you know, kind of opening the first page of the book, um, they all had the, the, the I, now I forget the name of it, but the, the actual, the, um, I think the Penny Arcadian was the name of it, um, the, yeah, kind of the recap Arcadian, page. Yeah. Did you actually write those, or was that an editorial thing? Because those were a lot of fun, especially like the early ones where it kind of set up things that were going to you know play off in the story. I I believe I you know I can't swear it, it's been so long. I think I wrote a lot of that stuff, but maybe not all of it. I do know that creatively, and this is something that I really want to stress that you know Lar Martin, the colorist, and, you know, and, and um, you know Mike Perkins, the anchor, and, and Butch Guy Spencer. They were all of us were very. In, creatively involved in this book from the get-go. Uh, I don't believe Butch or Laura or, or Mike actually sat there and typed up Penny Arcadian articles, but uh, there may have been somebody on staff. I I wish I remembered. There's a long way to answer this. There was a lot of words to answer the question. I don't remember. How about that? that that's good. <laughs> now, in speaking of, of the creative team, it's such an amazing team that really gelled together so well and was why that book was so critically lauded in that first year, especially that um, my question is kind of how did that team kind of come to come to be like you're at that at that lunch having the conversation about what will become ruse when does the creative team the artistic team actually come on board and how does that come about did you have any involvement in picking kind of who was selected or it was just who was kind of coming onto the stable of caution artists or how did that work my my memory is it was and i could be wrong my memory is that it was just here's who's coming into caution here's who we've hired now let's give them something to do so Butch would be good for something like this. I think that was that was the way it came about. Now, when you when you're writing this, and like I saw, so you sent me some outlines, so I have an idea of what kind of how your outlines looked for the book. How in depth did you, did you get in terms of like panels or anything like that? Because it's a very interesting book in that, especially for over the, that over that year, the panel layouts, everything goes across the page and then goes down, which is very different from what you were seeing in other books. Um, was that something that was coming from you, or is that coming from from Butch and Mike? straight coming from Butch. I mean, that was that was Butch's innovation right off the bat. That in every issue, you know, every page, every spread, and every issue would be a two-page spread, and you read across the spread with many panels rather than each page being in and of itself. It was an interesting way of, pr- of producing the work. It was a really interesting way of opening it up, and I like that choice. What's interesting about it, and Butch and I used to 
laugh about this all the time is that the way I worked at the Times, because Butch is such a, a good, natural storyteller in and of himself, that it didn't make a lot of sense for me to give him super tight scripts, panel this, panel this, panel this, and here's the dialogue and so forth. Instead, what I would do is work in, in more of a plot dialogue method where I would give him uh, you know, a detailed plot sort of beat by beat mm-hmm. and suggested dialogues so he would know who's saying what sort of rough draft dialogue uh, with an idea that I'd give him an average of five or six panels per spread uh, and then Butch, Butch would always draw like 14 panels <laughs> and every time and that is why the book is so dense and that is why the the book has so much dialogue in it because I'd get the pages back and I'd look at this I'd look at any given page and go okay there's five panels here that carry the plot and there's nine panels where people are just saying something and they're beautiful panels I better figure out what they should say so that was uh, you know that was always the challenge of that book and that was that was where I learned uh, to to pull out a bunch of thesauruses that are full of uh, you know ancient <laughs> English idiom and and literature and language and so forth and uh, boy I learned a lot of uh, I learned a lot of English idiom at that time. <laughs> Whenever I read any kind of like mystery, it always makes me wonder the people who can kind of craft them and put them together because mysteries operate on a very different level than most other fiction. How did you? feel getting comfortable telling mystery stories and, and using a detective, supposedly the best detective, to tell those stories? I was I was itching to do that. I mean, I've always loved mysteries as a genre, more than science fiction, more than any, more than fantasy, more than anything else. That's that's my jam, is, you know, Agatha Christie, Har- uh, Ellery Queen, uh, that, the whodunits, uh, that's my that's my natural go to. That's what I gravitate towards. So the idea of uh, being able to get in there and do my own was irresistible. Now I've read, I guess, some prior interviews that you were not a big fan growing up, or that you came to Sherlock Holmes very and late. And yet, Sherlock Holmes, right? And yet, I was not a fan of Sherlock Holmes. I was, it was, it was sort of embarrassing. I, we got to this point, and I never read a Sherlock Holmes story in my entire life up to that point. And I'll tell you why: because the very first one I ever read was The Adventure of the Speckled Band. And the solution to it is that a cobra was enchanted by music to do something. And by that time, we all knew that that's baloney, that that doesn't work, that that is, that's fake science. But, it, you know, they believe something they believed in the 1880s that is baloney today. And I remember reading that as a kid and thinking, this, this is the great detective and threw it across the room. And I never read another Sherlock Holmes story, not knowing what I was missing. So only when I... You know, took this assignment that I go back and look at the bigger body of work and go, oh, oh, oh I get it. I see why people revere this stuff. It's, it's seminal. When, when you start plotting out the first year, like, did you have a pretty kind of a good idea of what the full year was going to be in terms of the overall Lightburn story? Kind of. I think I probably had a, a decent direction to go in, but I tend to fly by the seat of my pants a lot more than uh, somebody who writes a mystery book should. <laughs> I, I always find that it's just more fun to discover the story as I go. I mean, I always have a good, a good idea. And of course I would sit down every month with, with the team and we talk out where the story was going and what was going to happen. But particularly in cliffhangers, and this is the way I, I always write with a cliffhanger at the, at the, at the end of the book, I guarantee you when I wrote it, I had no idea how the characters were going to get out of it. Not the slightest clue. 
because I just figured, well, if I don't know and you don't know and you can't guess, then we'll both be surprised. And it's more fun to write that way. It's it's a, it's a challenge, and I like that challenge rather than you know there are, there are people who are working across gen. There are people who work in comics who have their big six or twelve issue stories planned out in excruciating detail, and more power to them. That's how they work. But that's just not my style. To me, if I do that, then when it comes to actually writing the story, it feels like I'm doing you know something repeating myself and get bored. So I like to I like to figure out stuff as I go. When in terms of figuring stuff out as you go, how how quickly did you kind of latch on to the Lightburn character? Because as as it goes on, you're kind of seeding the mystery of what the relationship is with Simon, and then you really delve into that character. How much fun was that character to write, and what kind of inspirations were you drawing from to develop that character? Oh, it was a lot of fun to write. I mean, part of the inspiration was always uh, Mycroft Holmes. It was always the idea of, of Sherlock's smarter brother. Uh, and, and I also liked the idea of casting Simon against type. I mean, he was the... He, he was the smartest man in Partington, and he was clearly in charge at all times. And I like the idea of casting him against type as the the young Tyro assistant to somebody some years ago. I can't swear to you that when we started referencing Lightborn that we knew exactly who he was and what his relationship was going to be to Simon. My guess is that we probably didn't, <laughs> that we were just <laughs> sowing seeds and figuring we'll figure it out as we go. But I'm pretty happy with the way it came out. How frequently were you coming down to Florida at that time to kind of collaborate with the team? Or like, how did that process kind of work? Were you kind of back off in Brooklyn writing? Or did you come down and then talk with you know everyone? Cause obviously- oh, no, I was, I was fully on staff at the time. I, was, okay. I, was, I moved Lock, Sock, and Barrel to Clearwater, Florida, home of Hooters and Scientology. <laughs> so uh, all true, by the way. If you visit Clearwater, just be very careful what you say about Scientology in public. This is the God's honest truth. Be careful. Okay, so you're so you're actually working with the team. So again, that's a very different experience. That you know, you're writing. Oh, it's vastly different. Yeah. And what was your takeaway from that, like that experience? Because it is so different. And do you ever kind of miss that that being able to be part of that true collaboration in a different way than you're used to? Because you're right there with everyone and you're working on it all together. Or it, it depends. It, it really depends on the project. I mean, and, and it's still. There are projects that I work on today where I just basically write scripts and they're given to artists sometimes because I don't have any any real knowledge of who they're going to be up front. Or in the case of, say, Doctor Strange, most of my artists are working from overseas. Uh, so that's okay. But then I also like – there was projects like working with Chris Somney on Daredevil where it was very collaborative, where it was very – we didn't live cl- close together, but we would get on the phone and talk out the stories and bang ideas out. And that I enjoy. That's That really is fun because – it's it's just it's not as much fun sitting here in a in a void doing <laughs> stuff on your own. The, the the real enjoyment of creation to me is the batting of ideas back and forth. Absolutely. So that's um, two quick questions. I know we're, we're kind of running a little low on time. Um, that's okay. That's fine. Sure. Uh, first question is. Um, you know how so obviously you you do the first year and then you're not on Ruse anymore. So can you just as a fan, I'm just curious what happened or why you ended up leaving. And I don't want to get into any negative details. I'm just curious because it was always right. sad well, that you left. Right. It was un- it was an unfortunate situation. What what happened was I it you know as you pointed out, Cross Gen eventually sank, which is a shame. It was when it was up and thriving and had some great artists and, and great writers working there. Uh, but 
through financial mismanagement and through you know just a number of bad business blunders, the, the place went under. Uh, and at that time, I really wasn't getting along very well with the man who was running the place because I, I thought this was very deleterious to the uh, to the creative people who were working there. Um, and so I left, and it was not the most pleasant parting. And so sort of his revenge, uh, the guy who ran the place told me that the rest of the team – had decided that they didn't want me to have anything to do with the book anymore. They were going to do it on their own. And they they told them that I didn't want to have anything to do with the book, that I was leaving and didn't want to have anything to do with them. And that's kind of – how childish is that? And we only find out last week because we've been talking about this podcast offline, uh, me and Butch and and Laura and and Mike, that – this was not true. It turns out we were both flummoxed. We were both fooled by this. And it's a shame because I would have loved to finish out my run on Ruse, but it just was not meant to be. It was just out of our control. Mm-hmm. Now, eventually, uh, Disney buys the property in a kind of the comic book equivalent of a fire sale and get all the IP. And then when they buy Marvel, eventually we see uh, a few different miniseries kind of come out and we get to see the return of Ruse written by you. What was it like coming back to that character? It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that a great deal, and I really like what we accomplished. It just, unfortunately, it sank like a stone. It just, I, you know, I could probably stand on the street corner for an hour and give out more copies than we sold uh, because okay. it's just that's not what Marvel is known for, a Victorian murder mystery. So it's a superhero company. So it was an honest effort, and, you know, the artist tried, and the, and the editor was strongly in favor of it, but it did four issues it sank like a stone and there was never any cry to do anything more which is a shame so currently you know disney owns those properties owns those trademarks as far as i know and i don't know if anything will ever see i don't know if you'll ever see the adventures of simon archard and uh, emma ever again yeah it is a shame i mean i was one of the i guess the very few who bought that series because i was a big fan of the original I was very excited to, that they were coming back and uh it was it was fun to see it was interesting because obviously you weren't on a fictional earth anymore you were on the real earth or a fictional right world. that was the that was the adjustment that we had to make because we were no longer part of cross-gen shared universe exactly it was suddenly we're back we're in the real world but we kind of passed it off pretty well oh yeah it was honestly besides there not being kind of weird you know goblin creatures around that was i mean it was, it was kind of the same book that you'd always gotten but you actually yeah. had to build it more into history which was cool too thank you i mean I, and it was a lot of fun to do that i mean again i i it's a good experience. It's a lot of work to do a book like that, a lot of work, but I thought it was pretty rewarding. And while I may not be able to get back to that anytime soon because of who owns copyright, who owns trademark and so forth, and I've always known, really, it's just a riff on Sherlock Holmes. There's nothing wrong with me coming up with another riff on Sherlock Holmes and a female assistant uh, and doing something along those lines. And that's been one of my sort of in the back of my mind projects for some time is to try to do something ruse like mm-hmm. uh, cuz again who's going to sue me Arthur Conan Doyle so <laughs> Um, I feel if like, that happens, you know, I'll let you know. I feel like in defense of Emma Bishop, I have to say partner, not assistant. Exactly. That was a poor choice on my part. Exactly. <laughs> Emma was was always, not only, as she said, partner, not assistant, and he never wanted to hear it. Um, one of the last questions I have to ask about that particular sure. series is, um, would, did you, first of all, did they like? how did that book come about? Did they know that they were going to do some other cross-gen kind of titles and revive them for a miniseries? And were you kind of the first person called? Or were you kind of like, if you're doing this, I better do this? Or 
How did that come about? No, it was, I, I was called because the, the idea was we've bought this stuff. We should try to exploit it. What do we think is our strongest card? And the, the feeling generally around the Marvel offices, for right or wrong, was that Ruse had been the best of the original run of books. Uh, it was their feeling. And so, you know, whether that's true or not, because there were a lot of great books published by CrossGen, uh, mm-hmm. that's what they decided to, to lead with. And they came to me, obviously, because I was already a Marvel. And I guess it is kind of the one of the easiest ones to transplant to something new because it's not as connected to that big universe. That's true. It's much easier to do that than say like Sojourn or Sigil. Exactly. And did you the minute you got the assignment, were you like, well, it's a Lightburn story. It's got to be Lightburn. Um, no, actually, it wasn't. I don't honestly. I don't really remember my first thoughts coming into that. I just remember the final product. Interesting, because yeah, when I read it, I'm like, is is it going to go to Lightburn? I'm like, oh yeah, there he is. Like, I guess if you're a fan of the yeah. original, it kind of felt like it needed to go there. But I guess if it also really plays well if you've never read the original, which is nice that you know you you allow, you kind of um, hint at the you know prior adventure and that there was a prior uh, engagement with Lightburn without having to actually say what it was. Right. Exactly. Uh, okay. Well, I guess that's that's uh, what I had to ask you about Ruse. Thank you so much for uh, for taking part in this and for going down memory lane with me. As I said uh, off podcast, and I guess at the beginning of this as well, I was, you know, when I when Caution first came out, I was like sixteen, seventeen years old, and I was one of those people who was like, I get to be at the ground floor of this whole new universe, and I bought like every Caution book, and I, I loved Ruse. It was such an amazing book, and uh, from you know your writing to the amazing art to the amazing colors, it's interesting that Caution really fostered a lot of talent that got kind of got scooped up by Marvel and other companies and years later. They really did. They, you know, for all that went wrong with CrossGen, boy, they made some great art teams out of that staff. They, re- I mean, the, everybody who came to CrossGen, whether they were an established artist or not, they raised their game. Every one of those guys. Absolutely. Um, what, uh, I guess, what, what kind of a parting shot with regards to CrossGen. So, obviously, you, as you said, you worked on Sigil and Crux as well. Um, what was the experience on that book just as fulfilling or uh, those were very different books. I mean, they're more kind of sci-fi heroish, but what were those kind of like uh, right at the same time? Yeah. I mean, Sigil was never my thing cause I inherited it and mm-hmm. I didn't really link, I didn't really feel a sympathy with the characters. Uh, Crux I created with Steve Epting. Um, but very much under the, you know, as a short order cook, there's the idea we need a team book and it should have this many characters on it and this is where it should be set. And so that wasn't really so much developed from, you know, from scratch. And there wasn't really anyone there with my voice in it who was fun to write. Whereas mm. Emma is my voice. You know, Emma's completely my voice. And so that was a lot of fun to write. One thing I was stunned at when I was again reading the outline that you'd sent me in advance of this interview was that um, your original kind of interpretation of Simon and um, Emma and how they were connected to the grander kind of universe in terms of Danik and that kind of stuff was very surprising to me because I didn't I didn't ever really see that on the page. Yeah, it was, it was really just it was service to the head office who really wanted that to be there, and so we were again trying desperately to look for ways to hint at that sort of stuff without in any way making you feel like you're missing anything if you're not hip to the rest of the cross-gen universe. Interesting. No, I, I found that, again, I really appreciate you sharing that with me because there was so many interesting insights, not only into your writing process, but also just like little tidbits that I didn't know or didn't know that were kind of be seeding, seeding in and as a fan was very interesting to, to read. Thank you. 
Well, again, thank you so much for spending so much of your time and uh, for going for talking about Ruse. It's uh, I know for a lot of people who were reading at that time, it was it was such a great book, and we miss it. And I, I wish that it had not sunk like a stone when it was uh, re-released by Marvel as that you know four issue miniseries because uh, I'd love to see more adventures of those characters. But maybe you'll do a, a you know a creator owned uh, riff on uh, Sherlock Holmes at one point. Maybe who knows? Maybe that's in the my future. But thank you. I'm glad you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was nice talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You bet. Take care.